Baseball season's almost here, and there's never been a better time to check out DraftKings.com, America's favorite daily fantasy baseball site, where you could win huge cash prizes every day. Daily fantasy means no season-long commitment. Every time you play, it's like a new season. Head to DraftKings.com now and use code ATHLETE to play for free in the opening day $100,000 fantasy baseball contest. First place takes home ten grand. Enter ATHLETE for free entry now at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. Hey, this is Brian. The podcast is going to start soon, but uh, I have an exciting thing. Seth Godin, who was on the pod a few weeks back and so many of you loved, comes up in this conversation with Dave Ramsey. Uh, Dave calls him a genius. I say some other salutary things about the guy. And I was speaking to Seth, and um, as a holiday season present, he wants to give away 15 copies of his new book, Your Turn. He's going to free, totally free. Seth's going to give me the books. I'll handle the shipping. Zero cost. Um, it, the first 15 people who email themomentbk at gmail.com get a copy of Seth Godin's new book, Your Turn. The first 15 people who email themomentbk at gmail.com will get a copy of Seth Godin's new book. Uh, thanks for listening. I hope this little present... Um, fits right in to your holiday and the beginning of the new year. It's a, a great book about uh, kicking yourself into gear. So uh, thanks for listening. Dave Ramsey coming right up. And now, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This is a particularly uh, exciting uh, show for me. Um, our guest today is Dave Ramsey. And... Uh, you should know who he is because he is, as uh, as he always likes to kind of downplay it, the third most successful radio host in the country, uh, which I think is pretty incredible. But more than that, Dave, um, when I started first started listening to podcasts, um, I listened to Mark Marin, This American Life, and somehow found yours. Had never heard it, and I'll be honest with you, as a, a New York liberal, had no idea who you were, and. I have listened to your show almost every day since for, for years, and you are, uh, you know, so uh, positive, such a positive uh, force that even if the stories seem really far away to me, you uh, completely invite me in because of your uh, desire to give people hope and to teach them. And uh, I end up, even though I come at this stuff from a totally different place, uh, I always end up learning something. Uh, so thanks for that. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be with you. Thanks for having me on the show. Good. My pleasure. Um, you know, for people who don't know, I, I want you to tell your story a little bit. You know, you, you talk about it in bits on, on your show as a way to help teach people. But I think, the, you know, the, the premise of this show is that people who accomplish remarkable things process the high and low moments, the inflection points differently than other people do. And that we can all learn from the way those people, people like you, use that for fuel. So nobody's had a more kind of dramatic low moments and then high moments than you have. I imagine you'd agree. When it comes to financial, well, there's there's a couple, but not as not the typical story. That's for sure. You know, we started from nothing. Graduated from college. My wife Sharon and I got married, and um, literally in a one bedroom apartment, starting with nothing and started buying and selling real estate, and I got rich, at least by a kid from Antioch, Tennessee standards anyway. I had about $4 million worth of real estate by the time I was 26 and was making $250,000 a year. These days, that doesn't sound a lot like a lot, but that was 30-something years ago. I'm sure so, it still sounds like a lot to plenty of people listening. So, uh, But I did a lot of stupid things, nothing illegal and nothing immoral. I just borrowed too much money. And I did it uh, the wrong way as well because I was buying properties and flipping them before there was cable TV to tell you how not to do it. <laughs> but uh, so we, you know, I had a, about $3 million in debt. I was a millionaire, but that didn't matter. It was all in real estate. The bank got sold to another bank, called our notes, and we spent the next two and a half years of our life going through hell. We lost everything we owned. We were sued. We were foreclosed on. And uh, finally, at the bottom of that, we were bankrupt. I mean, I can't uh, imagine what that what that felt like. Uh, you know, from this perch where you are now, can do you remember how it felt? Can you still access sort of the the the, the, the series of emotions that you were going through then? Absolutely. Every day when I take a caller on the 
radio show that's in that same situation, it reminds me. It still puts that same lump back in my throat. I remember standing in the shower with it so hot I could barely stand there in my face and just stand there and cry. I mean, I had a baby and a, a toddler and a wife that was a marriage hanging on by a thread. I was so scared I couldn't breathe. I didn't know what to do. And I had gone from this arrogant, cocky young guy who had the world by the tail, you know, and just literally, I mean, from starting from nothing, here I am in charge of the world, right? Someone put me in charge of it. <laughs> and then, um, then they jerked the rug out from under me, and, I, and there I sit on the bottom again. And the fall, the rise in the fall was so quick, about two years up, about two and a half years down, that, um, that it just you know, it took my breath away uh, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, everything. And, and, and when we hit, we hit hard. And um, I'd like to say I bounced back, but I didn't bounce. It was more of a splat. And then you had to scrape and, and claw your way back up, and you obviously figured out a new way to live. But I want to just back up one second because, you know, I've heard you talk a lot about the kind of kid you were. And I think perhaps, you know, part of maybe why you got caught up in the way you did was then and I don't know if you're joking about it but the way you describe yourself as a student someone who would wise off and and not take stuff that seriously and you know uh, various teachers probably knew you were smart but didn't think that you'd necessarily become successful I'm I'm wondering if you were using sort of all that that energy to prove something and then kind of proving the wrong thing or or how you feel you're you're you know who you were as a high school kid fed into what happened. I don't think there's any question that always has part of the equation. I mean, I grew up just a redneck kid in the suburbs of, of Nashville, Tennessee. And so it wasn't anything poor, but it wasn't anything fancy either. And parents one generation off the farm, so they believed in hard work. And uh, old, old school, you know, you tell the truth, you work hard and, um, you save your money, that kind of thing, and uh, taught us to be entrepreneurs. Uh, we wouldn't have called it that back in the day, but um, taught, taught us that, you know, we could be anything and uh, in, in this great country, and we really believed that, and the weird thing is I still do believe it. And um, so, yeah, and I was just that smart, like, snarky kid that could talk his way out of anything and into anything. <laughs> right. And so I tended to use that gift rather than using the gift of my intellect to get ahead. And at the time, did you know, because, you know, so many people who listen to, to your show, people who listen to, to this show are often at a, at a place where they're, you know, trying to find a way to move to the next stage or the, like these letters, that the ne you know, to try to gain faith in themselves that, uh, that they're not defined by necessarily their past or what other people thought of them. And, but... But did you know somewhere inside you that you were smarter or better than you were acting? That Did you know that you could be a leader? Was any of that in you, or did you discover that in the failure that happened in your early 20s? Our parents brainwashed us to believe we could do anything. And so um, uh, it was... It really was more arrogance than confidence, <laughs> truthfully. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I went out and did it. And But I think the idea of what you're saying, uh, the idea of proving yourself, probably set the seeds of the destruction of that business. Because what it, what it caused me to do was to grow too fast. Uh, and that the way I built that business caused it to fail. And that I had short-term notes and I was... You know, I went from zero to 100 miles an hour so quickly and many times in business, many times. The greatest enemy of success is, is growth that occurs too quickly. Uh, it'll cause failure faster than a lot of other things. And that's what I did. I Because I was so uh, wired to prove myself, as you said, um, it caused me to build a house of cards. Had I been building it more for me rather than for the way it looked, uh, as a facade, I probably would have built the structure of the the business model differently and um, because I wouldn't have cared what other people thought. But I was really worried about how much real estate I owned, not how much money I was making. How much you owned as a, as a measuring stick. Exactly. And, and that, that was the seeds of my failure. That's what caused it to crash. And because you were, you were growing beyond your capability, beyond your resources at the time, because you actually were thinking about your priorities were were whacked. Exactly, about the way something looks rather than the way something is. 
And did any part of you, I was wondering, did any party? I know when I'm about to make a big mistake and we've all, we've all made them, we've all paid stupid taxes, you say, uh, some little voice in me does try to raise up and say, uh, hey, wait a second. So did you, and I know you, you imagine your wife and you might've had these conversations, but did you ever hesitate, think to yourself, wait, I'm, this doesn't really make sense? Or did you just kind of believe what the industries were feeding you that this is the way somebody builds a business? Yeah, when you're 23 and uh, you're going at 100 miles an hour, no, I didn't stop and think. There was no small voice. The only small voice was saying, go faster, go bigger. Um, the only small voice, as you mentioned a minute ago, was named Sharon, and that was my wife. And she was saying, you know, hey, bridge out ahead, bridge out ahead. And I'm going, well, yeah, <laughs> you know, you got a home ec degree. I got the business degree. I got this. And just stepped on the gas that much harder. And so that ensured that when we went over the bridge, it was a big mess. And how far out, because this, this crash you had is the kind that many people think would just derail them forever, make someone just go get a job, try, you know, uh, basically give up on a big dreams as opposed to changing the dreams or changing the purpose, the, uh, the reason. What do you think it was in you and in, in you and Sharon that, that enabled you at this low moment to take that extra step of really reevaluating? Or did it happen as you scraped back? It happened gradually as we scraped back because what we reevaluated was not uh, dreaming big and not even thinking about those things. We just reevaluated that, hey, the way we thought life works, it doesn't. The way we thought money works, it doesn't work that way. The things we were told, um, the plumb line was off. It was not accurate. So right. we've got to, you know, we've got to find out how money really works. Meantime, we got to try to stay married, not kill each other. Oh, and by the way, we need to eat while we're doing this. So it was um, more of a desperation thing than it was. Uh, uh, this hurts too bad. I don't ever want to be back here. Rather than some philosophical sure. thing where we're saying, "Oh, uh, I need to learn from my experiment." <laughs> right, no, of no, course. No, it was more. It was more like, uh, "How do we get up off the floor after we get hit that hard?" Yeah, but what do you think it is that that then made you make the choices to, I mean, you've talked about driving a borrowed car or uh, a really, you know, a beater. And sort of as you were going, how did you not, as you started to turn it around, make the same mistakes again? Well, I did study for my own personal use. It really wasn't set out to say, hey, there's a great need out there in the marketplace. It was more like... Um, this didn't work. The plan we had about debt, the plan we had about handling money did not work. And mm. so I started studying old rich people. I'd been young and rich. I didn't want his opinion. <laughs> so I started studying yeah. old rich people. And as a Christian, I started studying biblical finance. Both of those things pointed me towards what's known as common sense. And I really wasn't functioning in common sense. I was functioning out of a financial paradigm from academia that um, – that honestly, parts of it are accurate, obviously, but parts of it just don't work, their theory. And so um, as we got into that, we said, hey, we have to live on less than we make. We have to get on a written budget. We have to get out of debt and stay out of debt. We have to have an emergency fund. We started putting those things together gradually, incrementally in our lives. Our lives started iterating, and as we start you know, healing emotionally, spiritually, financially from this crash over a two-year, three-year period of time, uh, we started to be able to look up, and other people just said, hey, you didn't kill each other. You didn't get a divorce. Uh, I can see you're starting to, you know, get back together. What did you do? What did you learn? And we started talking about it and helping other people just over a cup of coffee and um, then teaching a little Sunday school class at our church, teaching those ideas. And gradually, ever so gradually, it, the focus became off of us learning the material for survival and to keep from repeating our mistakes to saying, hey, this stuff works. We ought to teach other people this. And now, 25 years later, as they say, the rest is history. Well, yeah, since then, just, you know, New York Times bestseller after New York Times bestseller. And so many people who have, I've heard uh, give, you know, a lot of people make a lot of claims about things. But, you know, you can't have made up all these people who, and I've run across them in real life, too, who have, have said that they're, their lives changed as a result of your teaching um, uh, them about not being in debt, not having credit cards, figuring out 
you know, uh, taking these baby steps to get out of debt if you are in debt. You know, you talk about hope a lot, Dave, and about one of the first things you realized was that you needed to give people the gift of hoping that, that it could, could get better and the real possibility of that. How did, when did you, and I, and I know for you part of it is a religious thing, um, and I understand how deep that faith goes, but you were, had religious faith the, the whole time. How did you get a real sense of, of hope that you and Sharon could pull out of this? And, and as that was happening, did you start to realize you could be a, a real leader and kind of a different kind of leader and mentor for people? Um, the, the second question first, the, the mentor or leading people has happened gradually. I, I could not envision leading 10 million people a day on a radio show or having 4 million people go through a class. I couldn't emotionally digest that that was in the future. Uh, I didn't see that. Uh, but I could, I could see helping the guy across the table from me and showing him, hey, look, if we sell that car and look here, and if you get an extra job and deliver some pizzas, I, we can get this budget balanced, dude. You can turn this around. And I would show him mechanically that he could make it, tactically that he could make it, mathematically that he could make it. And so the hope was not um, some kind of a positive thinking sure. or official thing. It was like a just a very practical thing. If you take these three steps, look where we're going to be, and you're going to win, and this is what happens. And, and then, by the way, that you extrapolate that out a few years, here's where you're going to end up. Oh, my goodness, look how fun that's going to be. And, and so then people get fired up. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I think, Brian, that that's the biggest thing was, and, and it was that way with us as well, people start to see a little bit of traction and a little bit of progress uh, they'll they'll move along, and, and so that was the same with me. In that, right. becoming a leader, so to speak, it was more of an evolution than it was. I woke up one morning and I went, "Ha! I'm going to help millions of people." No, <laughs> I wasn't. That's I was not that smart. Right? No, the guy crying in the shower couldn't envision that there'd be 10 million people. Oh. He didn't have the capacity to grasp that. Right? Couldn't have even imagined that they, all you wanted to grasp at that time was, "Hey, um, I can get out of this debt somehow, or maybe I can." picture being 30 and starting over, right? You had n no way to know. So how did you guys, as you were doing it, because your your strategy does go against a large part of what's the conventional wisdom. Um, and as you started building it, and as you said, out of necessity and, and doing this, when you would start to tell people, the guy in the, you know, the guy you were having coffee with, as you were helping share, like, hey, I figured this out. Did you ever wonder, like, um, what could I be wrong? Could I could it have worked for me? Could I be wrong? Like, what am I missing if the rest of the world sees it a certain way? Or as soon as you solved it for yourself, did you know, oh, it's a rigged game? You, you know, the interesting thing is that um, the, 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 the young guy who uh, was so worried about impressing everyone. Yeah. One of the benefits I got from going broke is my need to impress people completely went away. <laughs> and so I, I I actually should care a little bit more about what people think, and I just don't. It's it's not rude. I'm just no longer mo – that was completely burnt out of my soul. Right, that was obliterated. And, and so what people care – you know, I get criticized all the time today. You know, article comes out, right, and, and ripping Dave Ramsey for this or that. I truthfully just don't care. I mean, sometimes hurts my feelings a little bit, but not much. I don't have many feelings in that regard anymore. They're all gone. So I, that helped because then I'm saying, well, I could be wrong, but when I'm sitting with this guy across the table, I'm not wrong about his case. That one worked for him. And, and then the, then I'm sitting, sitting with a single mom and trying to help her not starve to death, and, and I can walk her through, and I say, and I wasn't wrong there, and then I wasn't wrong there. And now four million people later going through the Financial Peace University class, I wasn't wrong there. And, and so you get to the point that I, some little guy with a blog or something, I think he's wrong. Well, but I've heard you get angry because I do listen all the time, uh, which is, by the way, I, I meant to say this at the beginning, uh, which I, I implied it. So the, I have two rules for this show, only two rules, um, because like you in terms of not caring, because I have this other life as a filmmaker, I only do this because I love doing it and I want to talk to people that I'm really interested in. So my rules are, one, I have to be fascinated by the person or their journey or their story, and two, 
they have to be here in person. You're the first and only person I've made the on-the-phone exception for. Oh, my goodness. I'm so honored. Thank well, you. Well, no, and it's because, um, you know, I think you're, I knew that you do this over the phone all the time, but the one challenge of, of doing this over the phone, and I wonder how you do this, and I guess it's the years of experience, but, you know, when you would help that, preg- that you know, single mother uh, or that woman whose husband went off to war and now she's left dealing with the finances because I, I see the way you help military families, and it's incredible. Back then, I'm sure you could measure and see that person six months later, a year later, and know that it wasn't just a temporary fix, that they got themselves out of debt and stopped. How do you now, when you hear somebody, how are you able to engage? Like, what is it do you think that you've picked up from an empathy standpoint, from an experience standpoint that lets you... Because one of the great things about your show, and I would say to people, it's the Dave Ramsey show. You can find this on over 500 radio stations, um, and it's a great podcast. Uh, ha- you don't give boilerplate advice. Yes, the baby steps, you'll go back to them, you'll explain it. But, you know, I- I've heard people call and you make a left instead of a right with them because you realize they need something else. I, I heard you tell a guy today you've been working at this for five years, and you said to him, uh, hey, give yourself little rewards along the way. Don't worry about it. Take your foot off the gas a little bit. Here's why. How, how do you know? And then do you hear from these people later? And do they tell you five years later, ten years later, wow, it all stayed the same? You, it's changed forever? Uh, today, we don't track the individuals that far. Um, but what's happened is, is that, in a sense, some of those calls are a little bit of a metaphor for, for other people that are out there listening. And so we do see the overall anecdotal results. And so we know we're moving the needle with people like him. I may not hear him back again, but people like that lady whose husband was lost in the war or something, um, or people like the guy whose uh, uh, wife left and now he and just took off and there he sits with three kids. And yeah. so I, I hear, you know, back from them as I'm in a book signing line, as I'm getting emails from them, as I'm interfacing with them on Twitter or things like that. Um, so we've got all kinds of ways that we're in the marketplace having a conversation with people like them. But are we individually tracking each one of these stories? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But I did teach Financial Peace University live and lead the small groups live in person right. for many years. So literally thousands of times sitting kneecap to kneecap with someone like him, you kind of begin to get a feel for, hey, this guy needs a break today. He needs somebody to remind him that he's okay. Or this guy's just being a a turkey, and somebody needs to pop him a little bit because he's not being nice to his wife. I can feel it. Right. You know? and Because I've sat across the room from him in an FPU group uh, 15 years ago a hundred times, and I can smell that on him, you know, that kind of thing. And what is it about it that you still that you still love about having these conversations? Like what, what keeps you, I know there are tremendous rewards from it, like financially, but I don't, it doesn't feel like you're a guy who does the radio show primarily driven by that at this point. So like what, when you, uh, when you interact with these people, are you still touched? Are you still really engaged? Absolutely. You can't fake it on talk radio. Talk radio is too intimate. When, uh, when, you can hear it in people's voices. You can hear fatigue in their voices. You can hear it in the pauses. Um, you know this from coaching people on the screen. It's uh, the nuances of acting. And, yes. and you know, uh, there, there's just too many things going on there. And so I can listen to my fellow talk radio hosts and tell who's not going to be on the air in two years. You can hear it in their voice. They're, they're done. They're too angry. They're too burnt. They're too stressed. They're not prepared anymore. They don't, they don't, they're not having fun anymore. The work doesn't mean anything to them anymore. And uh, I tell our team all the time, you better hope this keeps having a meaning for me because when I quit having a meaning, I'm gone. Right. Then you're going to stop doing it. Well, and it was clear that when you and your daughter wrote the book that you were incredibly passionate about, uh, you know, in a way, putting yourself out of business, like putting her out of business by getting a new generation of people to uh, change these habits or to stop raising their kids in, in the same way. Was that for you? Uh, I have to think that was one of the highlights of the last few years, getting to do that with Rachel. Oh, you're right. It was It's huge to be able to speak with her around the country and do media appearances with her. And for the book to debut number one, it's um, it's just the whole Smart Money, Smart Kids project has been just a, a blessing. But, you know, what we've done, Brian, is every book we've written except the first one, we lived it before we wrote it. 
course. Literally. And so I, and so even the Entree Leadership book is how we run this business. Smart Money, Smart Kids. My kids are in their 20s and married. Two of them are married. Rachel's married. Got grandkids on the way, that kind of stuff. And so, you know, been there, done that. Well, it, this is not theory. It's uh, application. Well, I want to talk about Entree Leadership a little bit, which um, because, uh, you know, in the thing that I do, my my partner Dave and I, who's been, and it's interesting, I would say one of the only things I've, uh, you know, actively sort of had a different life experience than what you talk about, but I'm, I'm sure I'm the exception, is I'm, I'm business partners with my lifelong best friend, and we've been business partners for 20 years. And That's awesome. it really, our partnership really works for some reason. Maybe it's because it's a creative partnership or we're like brothers since we're 14. Mm-hmm. And I, I know you think partnerships are, are, are a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because, uh, and people often ask, it's funny, people often will come up to us when we speak and they'll say, would you recommend having a writing partner or a directing partner? And we always say no. <laughs> <laughs> we, we just, well, why, why do you say no? Because there are, there, the, uh, the ability to speak with one voice is so important when you're leading people. Mm-hmm. And when you're on set, uh, if you're talking to an actor or an actress uh, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. the production designer, mm-hmm. if egos get involved, if different people have uh, different viewpoints. You know, if an actor says, am I angry or sad in, the, in this scene? And I say, oh, angry, and here's why. You know, Dave and I have an understanding. Even if he was sure that the actor should be sad, he's not going to say that now. We're going to go back to the monitor. We're going to watch the take. He's going to quietly say, hey, do you think, whatever. And nobody will ever, nobody has ever heard us have a disagreement outside of the thing. But I think it's very, I think it's rare. That's the deal. That's the deal. You don't recommend it because it rarely works. You guys are the exception. Right. And, um, and and you've got a wonderful partnership. I had dinner with a friend of mine the other night, and he and his partner have been working together on book promotions. And uh, uh, one of his wife, one of the guys is single, and he and his wife, so and my wife all went to dinner. We're great friends. Multiple New York Times bestsellers. But his partner is the marketing arm. He's the writing arm. And they've been literally like you guys. They were friends in, in junior high school, and, and they've been partners for 40 years, and it works. Yeah, but right. it, it is, that's the exception. I, I, yeah, I always say it works. Few, I always say it works years. because, because uh, we liked each other when nobody else liked us. <laughs> you know? When you were 13. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'm saying. We were 14, and none of the girls would talk to us, and the guys didn't want to. It was just like, uh, hey, that guy likes to read books and watch, watch movies, and I do too, and uh, I guess we're friends, and that was it. <laughs> so maybe that's the reason. But, no, I, I, I see why it's challenging, and I understand why when you're talking to a big audience, it's, it's the sort of absolutely more responsible thing to say to the caller Boy, I think a partnership is a scary thing. You better be really sure before you leap into something like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because huh. so many partnerships are not formed the way you guys are, are, did that, or my friend we were just talking about. It's two old boys sitting over a beer. One of them knows how to put in a heating and air system, and the other one has a truck. <laughs> and now, and now they're partners. And that is not a plan. Right. Right. That makes total sense. They don't. You mean they? They haven't worked on. Well, this is why I wanted to get into entree leadership. So, the the odd thing about when you're a writer, director, or on television, you know, you're the writer and executive producer, so you're the person who's kind of the, the, the final, you know, the final answer on stuff creatively on the, on the show. We go from being two guys in a room with no one around us for six months, seven months, writing whatever the next thing is. And then when we go to make the thing, suddenly, like right now, we're making this show for Showtime called Billions, that's, uh, I think I'll be real interested in your opinion on it because it's about a hedge fund guy and a U.S. attorney. But suddenly we have 100 people um, who are all working on this multi, multi-million dollar endeavor that we're at the, you know, we're at the center of making happen. And so I've taken out Entree Leadership and read it, even though it's not exactly applicable to try to think about how, how to think about now being in this, you know, leadership position. And so I wonder, how did you figure out all that stuff as you built your company how how did this guy who was a you know a, a, with your wife but a, a single kind of operator learn how to lead and mentor and build a unified company that i know has won all these awards for being a great company well i've got a phd in dumb i made all the mistakes 
I mean, I didn't I didn't figure it out. It was a trial and error, and I got the bruises to prove it. And a bunch of the stu- stories of stupid stuff are in that book. So, yeah, I mean, I started. I was a horrible leader when I started. I was just a boss. Uh, but pretty quickly, I, I'm a I'm a pragmatist. So when something doesn't work, like how I'm handling money, I change how I'm handling money. And and if something doesn't work, trying to get productivity out of people you're paying, then I'm going to change my tactic. And meaning I and I probably need to read and learn from someone who. Uh, know something I don't know and steal some ideas. We call that best practices in yes. business. But, um, and so I started reading leadership. When in doubt, read a book on something you don't know anything about. And so I started reading, and I've got a whole library of leadership books now uh, 20 years later, and we have a wonderful company. But uh, some of the things this company is built on, some of the values were formed based on just mistakes that we made. We, you know, we ne- I never want to do that one again. That hurt. Right. And did becoming, you know, it's clear from listening to you and that you may not get angry, but patience isn't your long suit, maybe? <laughs> you would be right. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, you have the patience, I know, to... to... The guys in the booth are laughing right, right. now. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. And so, but the question is, as somebody who has to, um, because I'll say, you know, uh, when if you, if you think about it and why I'm asking you, know, I, I really always want to know this is, is you know, when, when you're in a, a creative endeavor like mine, you know, you see something at the, a certain way. Hey, I want this location and it's, it's got to look like this in my mind. And like, what are the steps you go through when they show you pictures that look nothing like that at first uh, to um, to help them do their job really well and p- feel like they're enlisted and part of the mission as opposed to making them feel bad? about not delivering yet. And was that easy for you or did you have to sort of get there? No, I was I was not easy for me. It was an accident. Uh, and it and then it wasn't an accident because it didn't work. So, yeah, I mean, somebody puts pictures down and you go, "Hey, that those suck. This is awful." And and then the people go away with their tail between their legs and and all they get out of you is getting beat up every time they're around you, then they don't want to be around you. So, and they don't want to work there and you can't attract talent and so on. So, cuz you're too hard to work with. So you got to adjust that. Now I wasn't completely a tyrant. Don't misunderstand. I didn't mean to hurt their feelings. Of course not. I was just not. concerned about getting the work done, and the work wasn't getting done, and so I'd call it out. Well, then I have to stop and think. There's two parts of the equation. Then I, number one, I have to have phenomenal, talented people. Number two, they have to care deeply about the outcome. And if I got smart people that care deeply about the outcome, and they come in the room, they want it to be right too. And they have the ability to know what right looks like. And and so we're sitting down this morning discussing in a meeting, uh, uh, reorganizing the way a couple of our departments are interfacing and where they sit uh, so that they can, you know, create less uh, overhead of running back and forth, trying to find each other to get something done. Simple, simple mechanics, it sounds like, but all these unintended consequences. But I'm sitting in a room with very smart people going, okay, here's what's going to happen when we do this, because this little group's going to do this, but there's 425 people watching you do this in the rest of the company, and then here's what's going to happen. And so we kind of get in there and sit, and and, uh, they know that I care deeply about them and love them, and, and I know they love me and they care deeply about the outcome. And so given that, then the table is set to safely argue with each other. To 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 be direct uh, without having to worry about, because you've already created an environment of trust and comfort, you're saying. Yeah, I, I don't have to worry so much about your feelings because you know that together we're going to fight this battle. And uh, but but in the meantime, I can look at this and go, you know, that's bad. I could say it nicer. I can say, how do you want me to say it? It's bad, you know, and, and then then we can all laugh a little bit and go, OK, now, how can we work on it? And what are we going to do to fix it? Because and they look at it and go, yeah, I kind of knew that I didn't really want to bring it in here, but it's all we had. And, OK, dude, don't do that again. Fix it for you. Get in here next time. OK. And, that, you know, it's that kind of a conversation. It's not a uh, it, it, you know, it. But if we all we do is dance around feelings all day long, nothing gets done. But on the other hand, if you just run roughshod everything through everything like a bull in a china shop, then you destroy the spirits of the people that are involved. And what do you do to kind of remind yourself of these best practices? I'm sure most of it's ingrained or a lot of it is, but I know you're somebody who want, wants to keep growing. You've kept growing. You've kept building and building. How, how do you do you are there people you talk to? Like, I know we're both friends with Seth Godin, who for me is a great uh, advisor. You know, I'll, I'll call Seth when I'm wondering about something and I find his counsel to be incredibly valuable and wise. Um, and, uh, um, do you have people in, in your life who 
who you can go to if Dave Ramsey actually is unsure, has a moment of not knowing? Absolutely. Yeah, Seth, as you said, is a good friend. And the, the only problem with Seth is he's just intimidatingly brilliant. But, um, the, uh, but he never acts that way. He just is. And uh, so, but yeah, have folks like that, you know, with Seth and me, it would be a marketing problem. We love bantering back and forth and, and he'll call me out and I'll go, oh, now, come on. And we'll we'll have, we'll kind of argue something out on marketing, but I love having him as a sounding board because as you said, he's unbelievably wise. Well, yeah, he's so so wise and, and, and bright and just um, never loses sight of what North is for you. That's what I love about him. If I'm asking him a question, I know he's filtering through the Seth Godin machine what my north is, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And I, what I look for is somebody on different issues. I, I don't ask Seth to help me with a compensation model. Right. You know, that, that I would ask him about a marketing thing. But I, I've got a good friend who's just brilliant with numbers, and he somehow can spatially see how people are going to react to a certain comp situation. And so if I'm trying to work through how to motivate a sales team and I've got this issue, they're not moving, I may right. sit down with him and have a cup of coffee and he'll bounce that idea off of him. But I might not ask him about marriage because he's not that great a husband, you know, so <laughs> that kind of stuff, right? So I just kind of pick and choose my thin slice of mentors here or there and have them around me. Plus I have an operating board here uh, of six people that is uh, that run this business with me that have all been here uh, a decade or more and all uh, they're my brothers and sisters. I mean, we literally get in a room and just fight. That's how we process decisions and we enjoy that process together. All of us, we're just warriors. Right. And so they're they're, they're, even though I sign their paychecks, there's complete accountability. If I do something that hurts an employee's feelings or something like that, or they do, one of the rest of us will call each other out on that. Are they the ones who try to change your Twitter password to keep you from tweeting in the early morning? <laughs> when, taking shots at your, taking shots at uh, whoever you know is dumb enough to to come at you. Yeah, uh, which yeah, for me is inc- fun. incredibly entertaining to uh, watch you try to resist and then not be able to. And it's great. <laughs> you can you can almost hear you saying, just take another sip of coffee. There's no reason. And then bang. And <laughs> I've yet to see you lose one of them. So it, it's it's pretty, uh, pretty entertaining um, to watch. But so you do. You have these people around you who you can talk to and who this team that you've built. And that's certainly what every time I go to make a movie or a show, Dave and I are constantly trying to do and have been able to. The thing you described of the lack of patience was definitely me on my first movie where I just, you know, couldn't, I couldn't get to that place of seeing how hard everybody wanted to do well and, you know, how much they, they were giving of themselves. Uh, So, and I'm sure for you, it's been that same thing. Can can you talk a little bit about, um, and you talk about this in Entree Leadership, about how you started that how that even came to be that you realized going from financial that you actually had learned how to run a business because I always think if people will notice in their own lives the stuff that they're good at it'll give them another avenue to go or a way to find what their new mission is which is you started making these having these talks right exactly again what we were doing is we were trying to grow the business and uh, the best way I could do that as a teacher was to teach our, our young potential leaders inside the organization how we run our business. And so here's the way we handle someone in a hiring situation. Here's the way we make a decision in a firing situation and how we act. And here's uh, here's how we make advertising decisions. And so we started developing literally a playbook on how we run this business so that we could um, multiply ourselves because we needed another layer of leadership inside the organization. Right. And then yet another layer, and then yet another layer eventually. And so uh, uh, we were trying to teach that to pass it on rather than the slow grind of mentoring it only. You've got to teach it and mentor it to increase the speed at which. Otherwise, you hire outside management that comes in, and they change the value system and the culture of the organization. We didn't want that. I don't mind hiring outside folks in, but they need to be conformed to the culture, and in order to do that, you need to know what the culture looks like. Sure. And so we wrote it down and taught it as a class internally, and outside people started attending just that were friends and family for fun, um, auditing the class, so to speak. Um, And I looked up, and, I, gosh, all of a sudden there were more people sitting there that didn't work for me than did, and I'm not real smart, but I thought, well, maybe we can sell this. So, 
<laughs> right. You saw that there was this real, there was a va- there was clearly like a vacuum that you didn't even realize was there until you started seeing people who needed this message from you. And, you know, that's we just told that same story a few minutes ago. I, I, I learned the money stuff for myself to recover. And then I realized I wasn't the only one. Other people needed this. Well, yeah, this is so just I have a couple of these kind of swinging for the fences questions about because I think you've learned a lot. It seems about you had to have about people through yourself. And and so is it in order for somebody to really make a change? People ask me this question all the time. Do you think they have to hit a point of desperation? No. So so how can they what can they do? What do you think it is that makes people finally change? Pain is a thorough teacher, but it's not the only one. Um, you, you can be called to a higher calling. A nobility can cause you to change as well. Um, I like to think that's the transition we're in today, where I looked up from a place of comfort, a place of prosperity, and said, uh, five years ago, I'm 50. I'm going to be 65 in 15 years. I need to have a plan here. I've got a whole 400 folks counting on me to feed their families. Are we going to just end this thing when I end, or are we going to transition it? If we're going to transition it, we need to get to work on what that looks like and how it works and begin to study it. And so from a, because I believe that this work matters, there's a nobility to it, and it should be, therefore, generational. And, uh, and, and there should be a succession and a transition game plan that's implemented. And so I chose in a moment of comfort right? because I, I'm – it's a little bit of ego, sounds like. I apologize for that, but it's, it's the truth. I, in other words, I think a higher calling can cause someone to also change other than just pain. Sure, and I know for you that can be a, a higher calling that's a religious calling. For me, it could be a higher calling that has to do with art or exactly. touching people through sort of like a different kind of beauty or inspiration, uh, yeah, humanism. It necessarily have to be a spiritual experience. It's just uh, you want your art to survive, whatever your art is. Uh, you know, no, that makes total sense. I mean, I was 30 and uh, blocked a uh, writer, not a, a screenwriter, and I had my first child and looked at, at him and realized I wanted to be the kind of father who would come home uh, and tell my 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 kids, you can become anything if you work hard enough. And that I wasn't chasing it, and that's what made me turn my. You know, my wife said, "I've been waiting for you to say this. Let's go." And that's mm. what enabled me to turn my life around. Clearly, Amen. that's awesome. That's that's exactly it. And that was not from a place of no. I was uh, successful crisis. in a job. No, it wasn't. I had a successful job. I exactly. just knew you, what you're saying. I I wanted something. I wanted something higher so that I could be a better. Fo- I, I could be a better parent. Watching your baby be born will change your nobility. It'll change your your view of a higher calling, a, a reason for doing things. And that's what happened to you. And that's what you're still lo- that's what you're still looking for for yourself. Yeah, now it's for grandkids, you know, and and it's for saying okay, legacy, which I write a lot about these days and talk a lot about. But uh, again, I'm living it as I'm writing it and and talking about it because it's something I'm literally walking in right now. Of how can this stuff we're doing matter beyond Friday, was it, matter beyond 2015. Was it complicated to you to decide to fold your your children in? I've heard you talk about family businesses and the challenges of family businesses, and it's clear that your daughter is a rock star. She's incredible at what she does. But Thank you. was that thing, uh, did, you, did you think long and hard about how they would manage it? In other words, not only how you would manage it, but the burden to them of of being successful in something that their father built. Yes, again, we studied it, and we talked to other people that were in that situation um, uh, where I, I literally, there's a, a an African-American pastor that's a friend of mine in Dallas who's famous, Tony Evans, and I called uh, his daughter as a speaker, and she's a world-renowned speaker, Priscilla Schreier. Right. And uh, I called Priscilla, I said, how did you, you know, deal with Tony's shadow? Because in that space, in that world, it's a big shadow. How did you deal with that, and how did you make the transition? I got her husband on the phone. Um, and so, really? Yeah, because I got, you know, Rachel's getting married, and how, do, how does her husband deal with this dynamic? And, and, you know, so we start asking other people that seem to be surviving it where the landmines were so we could avoid it. But we, it started with back when the, uh, our children were, were kids at home, uh, we told them not to come to work here unless they felt it was a calling. 
but not to come here because it was a job and a good place to work because their dad owned it or something like that, or someday they get to own it. Don't come here. Come here only because you can get this stuff on you and you would do it for free. And you feel like that lesson took hold in a way and that are how many of your kids have come into the business? Well, Rachel's on stage and is a, obviously a point person and an author and media and all that. So she's really out front. Um, my 23 year old just started in May. Um, I haven't seen him since he works in another <laughs> department in sales and there's four layers of leadership between us. And so he's just, uh, in there getting the crud beat out of him and getting the college knocked off of him. So he's going to be valuable someday, but, uh, getting uh, the he, college knocked off of him. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> he know he, he knew that coming in, but it was very clearly his, his sister and brother-in-law and other sisters sit on our operating board. They designed the program that he walked into so that he could be prepared for something later but and not be overwhelmed by being my kid that makes uh, that makes a lot of sense and and does uh does he call you dad at the office no no one calls me dad at the office it changes the conversation if rachel and i and five other people are sitting around a table and we're having a creative argument about what's going to be in the next live event when we speak and we're we're fighting through that uh or if i'm not in the room and she says my dad says it changed the table just tilted and so she says, everybody knows she's my dad. I mean, I'm her dad, obviously, but she says Dave. And uh, her husband calls me Dave, right. and Dan- Daniel calls me Dave at work. At work. Now, at home, it changes. We change hats. Uh, we call it a hat change. I'm the CEO here, and they need to speak to me like I'm the CEO of a 500-person company because I am. Um, and like so someone else that was at their pay grade would speak to me. And it's not that I demand some kind of, you know, bowing and scraping or something like that but they just need to have that kind of way they carry themselves and that burns off any of this entitlement garbage that goes so often with family business where someone's born on third base and acts like they hit a triple right yeah that's that's uh that makes total sense um right before my son went off to college my partner dave and i took him with us to a trip to california and uh, he came and, and it was the first time he was ever on a, a real, you know, he's come when we've shot movies, he's come to like, if we, cause I didn't want to be away from my family. So the whole family comes, but we took Sammy and, uh, we brought him to a few meetings and when we left, Dave turned to Sam and said, you've now met agents. I hope that'll stop you from ever thinking about going into show business. <laughs> hey, <laughs> he uh, was being a, a good uncle right there. I'll tell you. That's ya. good. That's a good <laughs> yeah. uncle. Right. It was a great way to show them. Here, you've seen this now. You've seen the, the animals at the zoo. Not only don't feed them, don't even come to the zoo. But, uh, <laughs> but clearly, you know, your, uh, your mission is a, a different one. And this isn't the kind of business that, uh, you know, the, the thing I do is something like yours that you have to really be called to. So because some of my audience, I know uh, some of them obviously are going to be fans of yours. But because some of my audience doesn't necessarily n- know you, can you talk a little bit about what you think the, the, the fundamental misunderstandings that that people have about how how money works for them personally the mistakes that you see people make the most we have a lot of young people just out of college who, who listen to this and what do you think they need to know the core of what we've discovered that changes people so much and gives them the opportunity to win is when you actually realize that you probably do already know what to do with money you just don't do it the problem with money is it's 80 percent behavior it's only about 20% head knowledge. We, we've put this idea out in the culture and floated it out there to where it feels like you have to have a master's degree in finance to be able to retire with dignity and to be able to manage your money and not be just constantly stressed out. That's just not true. This stuff is not rocket science. And, and so that, that's what we've discovered. It's very easy to understand, but it's very hard to do because I'm the problem, but I'm also the solution. If I can control the guy in my mirror, he can be skinny and rich, but he's got issues. So you know what to do. You can't spend money you don't have. We know that. We, you can ask anybody just about on the street and say, hey, is running up $50,000 of credit card debt at 18% a good idea? I mean, a very few people would tell you yes. I mean, like none. And so we kind of know that, and yet people do it. Why do they do it? Well, because they're not paying attention. They're not managing behaviors. And so the basics are five things. If you do them, you will win with money. Number one, you need to be on a written plan, on paper, on purpose. Every dollar needs a name every month before the month begins. If you are managing money for a company called You Incorporated and you manage money for You Incorporated the way you manage money for you now, would you fire you? 
don't you know write it down on paper and if you're married be in agreement with your spouse before you spend it this is your guideline number two get out of debt and stay out of debt well wealth is fairly easy to build if you don't give all of your income to the bank in a car payment in, in a house payment for the rest of your life and, and if that one's not big enough make sure you get a bigger house payment and credit cards and a student loan that's been around so long you think it's a pet and borrow 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 and then make a hundred hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year and have nothing because it all comes in and it all goes out if you don't have any payments build and you live on a plan building wealth becomes fairly easy the third thing is save money save for investing uh, save for emergencies save for your kids college save to pay cash for things so you don't borrow save 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 uh, and uh, the next one is be generous generous people people who give money have a tendency to win at life and at money it seems counterintuitive that if you give money away you'd end up with less but generous people are the people that hold the door open for you generous people are the people that do a favor for you generous people are the people that you want to work with next time and so they always seem to have work have you uh, have you read that Adam Grant book, Give and Take? No, I haven't. It's uh, I think you'd like it. It's um it's about givers and why givers in business end up winning. Ah, uh, you, what you may not like is he's a professor at an Ivy League school. Oh, I don't mind. But but it's uh, no, I know you read all the stuff that they say. It's clear you read uh, you read an enormous amount. I've heard you reference so much academic stuff, even if it's to say why you don't like it. But th- this guy's whole point he did it's based on tons of studies, and it's what you said that that there's one thing I think you'll love. I could actually see you uh, talking about it. There was a study of med students, and uh, the, peop- the, the medical students who were defined by their classmates as the biggest givers, the very biggest givers, were either at the, in the first year of med school the top of their classes or the very bottom. But within, and many of them were on the bottom, top 20% bottom. By the end of medical school, the students who were defined as the, the most giving, the most helpful, were by and large almost all at the top of their class because in those second two years of med school, you're working with other people, you're dealing with patients, you're dealing with doctors, and those where it was in their nature to help, to give their notes, to, they ended up thriving, getting the best matches at hospitals, and their lives went in the better direction because their instinct and their actions were, were to give. They were outwardly motivated in that way. It doesn't take long in our lives. That doesn't surprise me at all. That's a wonderful study. It doesn't take long in our lives to recognize that there are people that are givers and there are people that are takers. And, and you're going to run into both. And, it, and you, you know it pretty quick from meeting them. It, it, just their conversation style tells you if they have any generosity or not because it's all about them. You know, and, and you know that person is going to be transactional rather than relational when I get in a deal with them. Right. And so, um, and, and transactional people, you can do deals with transactional people because they're easy to, you know what they're going to do. Uh, they're very predictable. But the relational people are a lot more fun to work with. And you just, given a choice, we'll always jump into that relational person. And, and in this context, what we mean is, is that person is generous. Well, yeah, so often when you're talking to somebody on your show, they'll be telling a story and you can feel as the listener gosh, they knew they were making a mistake. They knew they were trusting the wrong person. They, mm-hmm. But they, they somehow didn't take that extra step to, to sort of define who they were really dealing with and why. Well, I think we've told each other to trust um, an academic understanding or the logic flow of something, the critical thinking flow of something. And, and um, we, that's kind of the science side of it, uh, of living. And we've lost the art side of living which is where you say, hey, my wife has an instinct about something that I don't have. I need to trust that. Sure. And that's not logical. That's not critical thinking. That's not the, the standard methodology for viewing something in a flow chart. But, um, you know, how many times do we know we're watching someone and, and, and we know we're not supposed to go into this thing with them? Cause yes. The, but, but you really can't put your finger on it. And so, well, you go ahead because there's no logical reason to walk away. But down inside of you, you know. Especially as you grow up, you start to figure it out as you, as, as you get older. Do you think that there's a different you, – you often talk about, and I think it's something that, that people can really be helped by, you often talk about um, that folks fail to measure risk into the equation when they're thinking things out. They don't adequately look at risk. But do you think there's ever, you know, in, in my business, people who want to become, you know, artists, and I know there's never an excuse to you in your world view 
credit cards, but and I understand why. Um, you've explained it really well. But do you think that a single person who's in their early 20s has a, that it's more acceptable for them to take certain kinds of risk to chase after a big dream? I mean, how do you how do you you think, uh, you know, when you hear the stories of people who succeed that way, is it just that they're the rarest of exceptions or is there ever a time to, you know, when you're young, try to make a big change like that? Uh, again, I'm kind of a pragmatist. And so my 23 year old son is um, single. Right. And um, and but I know all the statistics around marriage because I've studied them for years as a part of what we're doing. Right. And so can you go out on one date and three days later get married and be married 50 years later? Yes, you can. The probabilities are very low, though. <laughs> they sure are. And so I'm going to advise him against that. Uh, can you uh, be hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and um, and, and uh, you know, get married at 16 years old with a child out of wedlock and survive, and, and your marriage survive 50 years. Yes, you can, but the the deck is stacked against you, statistically. Uh, I mean, the statistics are very clear in marriage. You know, a reasonable dating period, a level of education, a level of somewhat level of prosperity a level of stable home life that they came out of, which is one variable you can't control. The rest of them you can. Um, a, 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 you know, a methodology of how you interact with each other sexually prior to, uh, there's all kinds of data prior to marriage. There's all kinds of data that indicates that, so why try to be the exception? You know, why try to swim uphill? And, and so there's all these people that have become successful anyway, and they didn't have to, Work a stack, work against a stacked deck. Sure. And so that's yes. what I would say to that that young person is, hey, I'm not saying don't live your dream. I'm saying let's do it in a way where your probability of success is much higher. That's why I think that book Quitter that John Acuff wrote, and I know you published, was, it was when I found I found that book through you, and I wished I would have had that book when I was younger because it talks about how to make that transition in a different, how to make that transition without blowing your whole life up. Exactly. Which is a valuable thing, and I know it's something you believe in. I'm just going to let you go in a second. I want to ask you uh, just uh, two more things. One, I've been reading lately, uh, this is a, just from having listened a lot, I've been reading lately about all the hidden fees people say are in mutual funds, and uh, I've heard you talk about them for a long time, and I understand why they're uh, uh, in many ways a great investment. Have you, as you keep learning, do, is there any validity to the idea that index funds are better than mutual funds long term? The index funds are better than some mutual funds long term. They're not better than all of them. And so the validity is is that after, I mean, so what you have to do is you actually have to think. And so um, <laughs> sure. you actually have to, you know, you need to dig in there like you're doing and learn a little bit about it. Um, and so, uh, you know, what I didn't do early in my career was I said, okay, don't buy index funds, just buy loaded funds because you can get advice and you can get cared for by a good advisor and they'll keep you in the market and you don't jump out every time the roller coaster goes down right. and right. all of those kinds of things because all kinds of data around that. But then as I, as I personally started saying, okay, I'm also using some index funds, so why am I doing that and personally? Because uh, I don't advise people to do things I don't do. I don't have that like I'm somehow different than my caller or my listener. I'm not. Right. And so index funds, like an S&P 500 fund, a no-load fund, is tracking exactly with the market. It's a beta of one, which means it's, it is the measurement of what the stock market's doing. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is not the real measure. The S&P 500 is. And so the question is then, when you open a prospectus on a regular mutual fund, not a no-load index fund, and two pages in, in the prospectus, there's a comparison graph that shows the S&P 500 over the last 10 years, and it shows this mutual fund you're looking at over the last 10 years. Is it outperforming the S&P 500? Is it outperforming it enough to justify the fees that they're charging you, and you still net yet more than you would have in the index fund? Those funds do exist. And they're really not that hard to find. Everybody acts like this is some kind of rocket science that it's a needle in a haystack thing. It's really not. But uh, there's something about this. Um, uh, it's kind of an Internet thing, I think, where everybody's kind of got this idea that um, uh, 
anything that has a fee on it is automatically evil. And um, so I don't, I don't know where that... No, for me, it came from just, um, you know, Tony Robbins is also a friend of mine, and he, for a long time, and, you know, he, as he was doing this research for the book, he said he realized he was in these mutual funds, then was paying 17 fees that he didn't realize were hidden in there, and did this comparison to the index funds. And for him, for him in his book, he talks about why, and I was wondering how you incorporate it. So you do yeah. think it's a valid it, thing to check? It, well, I can find them. I mean, I, I know it's valid. I, I go to a Morningstar, I can pick up the phone, call my broker, and right. he can find funds that outperform net of fees that outperform the S&P. Uh, and so... Uh, that makes total but, sense. But, you know, but, but do all of them? No. And is it automatic that if you go get a broker that you're going to outperform the S&P? No. And so to my uh, the people that criticize me for recommending those funds, to their credit, um, agreed that, that there's sometimes that a, a broker is going to lead you into something that doesn't outperform. And so you wasted your time and your money. So you have to actually be engaged in the process and watch what's going on. And so I think right. it's I think it's mathematically and there's evidence to support the idea that to say all one way or all the other is incorrect. No, that makes total sense. And when I hear you say mutual funds, by the way, I'm, I'm thinking to my, your main point, and I do think when people are critical, and let me be clear, Tony Robbins wasn't critical of you at all. He's making a whole nother point. But when I, he was talking about just in general mutual funds and index funds, but I just hear the, the big message being don't try to be a stock picker. Be in, be in a big group of things that can protect you from an individual stock cratering. And I think that message is clear across both of those things, isn't and it? Here's what's the most interesting thing about this whole discussion. The, 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 and it's been this is a discussion I've been engaged in for 20 years. The data is just coming out. I just pulled some research the other day that the biggest problem with people's retirement is not this discussion. The biggest problem is they don't put any money in, anything. <laughs> right. They don't say, you're saying they and haven't so been doing the 15%. Of, this is an academic discussion that's like a think tank that doesn't have any application at all in the real world. Nobody is arguing about this. They're just not putting money in at all. And I think we can all agree. If they put it all in index funds or if they put it all in a mutual fund that slightly underperformed an index fund, <laughs> if they just put some money in, we'd be okay. Oh, man, it's good to know you can still get your blood up. See, with all the success, <laughs> all of the, you know, oh, I don't get angry anymore. I don't let this stuff bother me. It's great that you're so passionate, Dave. It's why you're so, listen, I've, I've, been, I've walked around this city, New York, and I've been like, I am a, a, you know, a Jewish atheist screenwriter, New York liberal, and you're like one of my three favorite things to listen to because I think at the core, you care, it's clear how much you care about people. And when I hear you talk about like putting 50, you, you know, you're the, the, yes, you could have the academic argument, but what you're saying to people, and especially to these young people listening is develop a habit of thinking about your future and protecting yourself for your future and put, you know, take these steps that will help you be able to not make the mistakes that everyone, you know, so many of us made along the way. Just be intentional. Just be intentional about the whole thing, and you know. And I, by the way, I'm a huge fan of your work. So oh, we're, nice we're mutual say. admiration society Thank here, you. and well, and uh, e even if uh, it appears that never the twain of southern redneck and you would ever meet. But, no, you know, if you're no redneck. But lastly, so lastly, I would love to hang out with you and Seth when I'm up there next time. Well, we got to do it next time you're here, 100. And then you get, at dinner, you have to explain to me what a Jewish atheist is. <laughs> I, I will. I can. You know, my 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 buddy Pendulet always asks me that too. It means uh, well, I could tell you. It means um, cultural Jew. <laughs> when, yeah, well, no, what it means is that when I'm walking down, you know, if I'm walking down the street and someone's like, you know, that I'll, with, I'll clean up the language, but if someone's like that, you know, effing Jew, uh, they mean me. If they want to beat somebody up, they mean me. So I better know what that, <laughs> I better know what that means. I better be prepared. nothing to do with the synagogue. No, I better be prepared for it. Uh, I, you know, my kid, I better know what that is and have be steeped. I mean, listen, I've read, I've read a ton about all religions. I'm fascinated by religions. I, I love people of faith. I just, uh, see it a different way. But lastly, before I let you go, the last thing, if that, if, if, if you at your lowest moment could have seen you now, Dave, what do you think you would have made of it would you be would you be pleased at the way that you are um acting in this success that you've do you feel you've uh, you've done it differently this time and have have really learned all the lessons of of that that 23 year old kid i hope so i hope so um if if i wake up in the morning and i don't think so then i need to change something tomorrow 
Um, did we do it perfectly, and do we do it perfectly every day? Oh, no, I don't have that level of expectation on myself. But, um, but, but it has been a good, good ride. And what's surprising to me is, is that, with very few exceptions, almost not, almost there's almost no singular event that caused this or could have stopped it. Even the bankruptcy and the crash hmm. um, seemed to have been a catalyst. But I kept waiting, you know, in the media career or in the publishing career to be discovered. And it's it's not. It's just you win by increments. Death by a thousand cuts, you win. And, and um and you keep fighting. Occasionally, you have these blips where there's this moment. You go, wow, that was cool. I was on Oprah, you know. But if I look back on it, not being on Oprah would not have stopped this from happening. Or not having that first book hit the way it did would not have stopped this from happening. There's not one thing we did that caused it to happen. Um, and and it, the only thing that caused it to happen was coming to work every single day and caring while we were here. Boy, that's fantastic. Note to leave on. That's what I always say to people. People always say they want to chase their dreams and they forget the hard work part of it. Yeah, have big dreams and every single day take steps to achieve them. And it's clear that's what you've done. What a beautiful thing. Hey, man, thank you so much for doing this. We'll hang out with Seth. And I get down to Nashville, so you may see me show up down there. Hey, holler before you come. We'll make arrangements, man. It'll be good. All right, that's great. Thanks, Dave. Be well. Honored to be on the show. Thank you, sir. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, Subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.